to be honest. Um, I have discarded more tackies and boots than I know what to do with, simply because that's the kind of territory I work in. It's not a desk job. It's not nine to five. But it's the best thing I've ever done with my life. Hey, hey, beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of Sahu, the growth and leadership podcast. Today, we have a multi-acclaimed journalist with awards ranging from environmental conservation and consecutive wins for the Vodacom Journalist of the Year for Best Radio News Feature. Allow me to welcome Manoshni Pillay. Hey, Manoshni, how are you? Hi, Shiv. I am excellent, all things considered. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us and making time on your busy Sunday or your restful Sunday uh, to chat to me and to my audience as well. It's a pleasure. It it is a very rare restful Sunday because I do work um, a lot of weekends, but it's an absolute pleasure. And I thank you and your listeners for having me. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks so much. And uh, I mean, let's let's get into it. And and I mean, you've you've been acclaimed with multiple awards, um, to say the least. And you're also an alum of Rhodes University. And let's let's dig into that. And I mean, how was Rhodes University during during that time? And I mean, Rhodes has obviously turned um, to sort of a space where with the pandemic has has gone down and makes it quite hard for students. But how was your time at Rhodes University? You know, it's it's actually quite ironic that that would be the first thing you ask me because when I woke up this morning and got into the shower, I pulled out my Rhodes hoodie and I put it on because <laughs> I had to pop into the office this morning to do some work. And I put that on and I, I, I just thought, oh, I'm doing an interview, um, you know, over my career and things. Let me just pop this on in case I need to be on camera. <laughs> Shiv, you know what? Um <laughs> <laughs> I think when I look when I look back on like where my career started or where my development as an individual started, I can distinctly and clearly say it started in 2000 when I left Durban and traveled to the Eastern Cape to go to Rhodes University. Um, it is it has been undoubtedly some of the best years of of my life. Um, for so many reasons other than just academics. Yeah. Um, I went there to study a, a Bijan. Uh, it was, it was, it remains one of the few tertiary institutions that offers you th- the, the opportunity to get a degree in journalism. Um, I had no family in the Eastern Cape. I was very, very blessed having parents that were very liberal and uh, allowed me to pursue whatever I wanted to do. And I, I had no friends, no family, I knew nobody. And I just went there feeling like this was something I wanted to do. Um, but when I got there, the personal discovery of becoming more confident, not worrying about boundaries in yes. all facets of life, in terms of uh, gender, sexuality, race, language, um, I moved into a digs with two Zimbabwean girls, a Greek girl from East London, um, and a dear friend of mine from uh, King Williamstown. Uh, All of us were from different backgrounds, different cultures, and they today remain among my closest group of friends. And then the cherry on the top obviously was 
<laughs> what I actually went there do was to study. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, Rhodes just gave me such a diverse view of the world. Um, and ironically, because it's this tiny university in this tiny town that if you were to take the university out, what would be left of it? You know, the university generates so much of the economy of that little town anyway. Indeed. And when, when all the fees must fall protests started to happen and Rhodes was really at the forefront of a lot of it. Uh, my group of friends and I, you know, had conversations about, you know, uh, the calls to rename the university and what the university stood for, what it should stand for, uh, equality and that those kind of debates. And, and, you know, we all said to each other, while we understand like the trajectory that all tertiary institutions need to take in this country, yeah. we never felt that way when we were there. If anything, we felt so liberalized in diversity we didn't feel like this elite bunch of students uh, benefiting from a former colonizer's vision, if you could say that. Yeah. Um, and I by no means came from a background where I had all the money in the world to go to Rhodes. I came from a, a very, very mediocre financial background where all my parents did was save for the, so that when I turned 18, I could get that education. So elitism was never part of my life. And I knew going there, the huge responsibility I had to get that degree in those four years and make something of myself. So it, it, was, it was really, you know, in one way, it was wonderful to see the, the Fees Must Fall movement take off and what it, what it stood for for students of a younger generation. Yeah. But... Personally, when, when we had our conversations as, as alumni, we never felt um, a lot of what students were voicing. And I'm not saying that means they were wrong. I'm saying that it's a very, very special place. And to be honest, if that even just the chain conversations around a name change were became so emotional when I thought about it, that was that will always be a place where I left a place, a piece of my heart, to be honest with you. Wow. And I mean, that's, that's an amazing story, but what, what drove you to, to Rhodes as well as, as an education system and what was the biggest driver and the passion to, to put you into journalism and sort of that media space? So I, I, I'd always really rotated towards, um, the creative arts and languages and, you know, that kind of stuff. As much as I did maths and physics and all those amazing subjects at school, I never, it never really felt like what my soul really loved. And so my options really were, I either wanted to pursue law or journalism. And I, I had always loved writing, whether it was academically or just personally, like it's, it's a very cathartic space for me. It's something I tap into a lot to this day. And so journalism felt like the natural option. I also really have always had this ridiculous feeling like I could save the world. <laughs> At that point, I didn't know how I was going to do it. Uh, I still feel like that a lot of the time, but um, I think it's a little bit more focused now. But I felt like journalism was a meeting of those two worlds. So my love for writing and a feeling like I wanted to make a difference. And so at that time, Rhodes offered 
a bachelor in journalism and it was not a diploma option. And I felt like I had a better chance in the industry with a solid degree. And so that's why I went to Rhodes. Um, and also I really liked the idea of smaller classes and a little bit of an away from home experience. I mean, it was time to get out of Durban. Yeah. To get out of a small city and move to a smaller city, it made no sense, <laughs> right? But the 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 amount of uh, independence and eye opening that it brought because I was away from everything that was familiar to me was was what sealed the deal. It it made the academic journey all the more sweeter. Wow, and I mean that's that's an incredible story. And I mean, what you you mentioned that you wanted to change the world. And I mean, we all want to change the world in, in, a, in a way, but it's very hard for us to normally find our passion. And I mean, you've had an extensive career. What has been your main drive and your main focus in terms of focusing on a particular passion or a particular field of journalism um, that you can impact and change the world? Which, what have you focused on? So... When I started off at the SABC, and I'm very grateful that I've been at the public broadcaster for most of my journalism career. When I started off, obviously I started off being assigned to a wide range of, of beats from politics to education, to health, to enviro, court reporting, you know, and it was really good. It is really good to have a very broad range skill set in terms of covering different kinds of stories because mm. Each kind of speciality requires a specific way of telling it, writing it, interviewing it. And so you develop like a broad skill set. But it's quickly became obvious to me that my best stories, like stories where I could work for 14, 16 hour days where I'd come home and still think about it was human interest where human beings and their lives and their voices are at the center of that piece and environmental journalism and conservation stories was the second little niche that I knew I fitted so well into. And what they both have in common is it places goodness at the yes. center of it. It places people and their voices um, it places tragedy at the center of it. it. It's not easy beats to cover because there's so much of tragedy in conservation at the moment. There's so much of loss in human conflict, in natural disaster, but it's how you tell those stories that even if one person listens to it and thinks, damn, I need to, I need to get that contact number and I need to make contact with that person that was interviewed in that story. If one person does that for a story I've produced, then I know I've, I've succeeded. And ju just recently during COVID, we've been filled with so much hard, hard heavy news. And 2021 doesn't look like the COVID story is gonna be much easier for a little while until the vaccine becomes common practice, right? Yeah. So I, I thought to myself, how can we still tell positive stories? How can we make a difference? Because there's so much heavy news around death and COVID. And so what I did was I just started doing some research on 
ordinary people that were not affiliated to companies that didn't have a lot of money that were giving back. And the amazing stories I found of a man that uh, was a former policeman, retired, uh, disabled, but what he did during COVID was he just said, I will pick people up and take them to the doctor. I will deliver their groceries. Just pay me for the petrol and I'll do that for you. Um, uh, I came into contact with an amazing woman from Phoenix who lost her father and her brother to COVID, then was infected herself and, and her husband and turned her absolute grief over this double loss into weekly soup drives for people that had COVID in her community and she works a full-time job. Wow. So this is what she does on the weekend. So, and, and what happened was when people heard those stories, they were so impacted by these humble, simple people that they wanted them to get in touch with them to see how they could help them. And so those little COVID community projects started then to take on even more trajectory. So, you know, people would, um, I think a lot of journalists talk about chasing the big stories, the big breaks, the, the headlines, you know, and yeah. that's oftentimes the politics, but these are the stories that gives me such joy that makes me feel like what I'm doing is giving back to me more than it being a job. No, definitely. And I think the, the idea of creating meaningful relationships and allowing people to see the meaning and the positivity that they're instilling in the community. And you don't need much to share kindness and to, to share value and unlock value in the community um, or for yourself as well. And I mean, that's a huge impact across the world and across South Africa as well. Absolutely. I think the misconception and, and in a lot of the stories I've done and in a lot of the people I've been so humbled to interview, I always say like, I've, I, ha I think I have a very old school view of journalism in that um, I sometimes find it very hard to simply just stick my microphone in, some, in front of someone's face, ask for a comment and walk away. Yeah. I kind of feel like I have a responsibility to convey what you are saying to me in as best and accurate a way. Because when you interview, um, I interviewed during COVID as well, uh, towards the end of last year, a woman who had been attacked and beaten so badly by her, her partner that her left arm was will for the rest of her life remain in like this tight, elasticated cast because if it's not in that cast, her muscles have lost so much of stability that her arm just hangs limp by her side. And at that time, I was concerned about COVID. People I knew were passing away from it. And so I was very distracted. And I, when, she, when I saw her and I heard her story, I said to myself, Minoshini, pull yourself together because if this woman can pluck up so much of courage to share this with you, you have a responsibility to A, be engaged, yes. B, be as as diligent as possible with conveying her message because she wanted other women to hear this so that they would not put up with abuse like she did. 
Yes. Um, and I'm I mean, sure. even even her, her mindset around it was, I want to help someone. So as a journalist, I'm so blessed to be the conveyor of that person's intention to help, you know? Yes, and, and spread spread the, the, the word or the meaning behind maybe their struggle or their situation. And because one voice, some people or other people can also be going through a similar situation and they can be a voice of hope and a voice of, you know, coming forward and saying, this is what's happening in the community and the, in the world. And we need to speak about that as well. Absolutely. And, and you know, Shiv, it's not always easy. Uh, I, I've been in, in the industry for close to 12 years now, and I still find myself saying to people that are arrogant and rude when you ask them for a comment or to give you like five minutes of their time, because, uh, you know, there's a lot of negative perceptions around journalism that yeah. we're media, we're, we're hungry, we're cutthroat and fine you know, in an unbiased fashion, perhaps a lot of it is true. When people say the media, I always ask them, who are you referring to? Which organization are you referring to? Be very specific when you throw that term around because yeah. not every journalist is in this for the cutthroatness of the industry. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I feel like perhaps we ourselves don't talk about it enough to make people understand that our intention, like I often find myself saying to people, I am calling you because this is my job. I'm not calling you because I want to harass you. And that's what people see journalists as. These guys that just want to harass us for a comment and then they're going to misconstrue what I say and, and, and. So you've oftentimes got to spend some time talking someone down and breaking down their perceptions of why you want to speak to them and what you're going to do with what they say you know, um, gaining their trust and then getting into the story. It is draining. By the time you've done that, you've spent about 20 minutes trying to get someone just to break their preconceived (laughs) notions about the the industry. And then you actually get to the core business of doing what you're doing. So it's, it's not, it's not an easy thing to just pick up the phone and, and get, get, get someone to comment or verify facts for you. Well, and I mean that's and I mean that's that's a whole process on on your physical system as well and, and emotional system as a person. And how do you manage to keep that balance between, you know, there's there's a lot of negativity out in the world and a lot of struggle out the world, and you're creating a a image for it to in enlighten people of what's going on in the world. But how do you sometimes detach? Because it also can affect your energy system and, and your body as a whole. So how do you use that or detach from the perspective to stay positive, to keep going, to look at new perspectives and new stories as well? I could talk about that one question for the next 10 years. <laughs> That's how passionately I, I feel about it. I feel every newsroom should have a therapist that is permanently hired by an organization that sits in that office so that anytime you come back from a gut-wrenching assignment, you can go and sit in that room and cry. I had an editor, one of my best editors who recently retired and she had a chair in the corner of her office. It it was similar to, I I think it was just so old, it had started to rock. Um, And when I came back from a grueling assignment, before I sat down to script, if I mentally and emotionally was 
was in a rough space, I'd just go sitting in, the, in that chair. I'd rock back and forward. And she wouldn't even say a word to me. She'd just know why I needed that space. I'd do that for maybe two minutes. And then I'd snap back into it and, and get back to the job. I can't say I've, I've been able to find a balance. I think at times I'm too in, invested in, in a story and um, you can't, you know, the, 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 the advice of leave work at work, it, it yeah. just doesn't happen in a career like journalism. And I feel like if you're doing it the right way, it shouldn't happen either so it's hard it's hard to to find that balance when i'm saying things like that but i honestly feel that if you feel if you have that emotion it comes out in your story and that makes for a better story rather than it being a cold clinical piece i mean i think about the first the first really heavy story I did was a family massacre in Northern KZN. There were about 12 family members in a really impoverished area that had been massacred by a rival family in the area. And when we got to the scene, um, you know, there was police tape and uh, the forensic team was still there. And so the bodies were obviously still there. Yeah. And I was very, very fresh as a cub reporter at the time. And I remember, I mean, seeing the dead bodies and at that level that I'd never seen at before was fine. I got back to the office. I started writing the story, my script, editing my sound. And then I could just smell the dead bodies. Like, I, I, not that I had gone near them, but that smell of death just like yeah. felt like I had brought it back with me. And when I got home, all I wanted to do was have a shower because I couldn't stop smelling it. Um, there's been a really tough court case that I sat through for years and years and years. And some of your listeners may have heard about the story of baby Jamie from Chatsworth in Durban, who was abused by her mother and grandmother for years, and then eventually killed. And they were subsequently convicted of her murder. But that court case sat in the Durban High Court for about three years. I became so invested in that story. I canceled leave days when there were court appearance. If it was my day off, I'd cancel my day off. I just became so invested in telling this child's story because it wasn't simply about her murder, but I soon realized like the fact that she eventually died was actually kindness. And I realized that her death was actually the kindest thing that could have happened to her because she'd endured such years of systematic abuse that um, those acts over, the, per over the, the period of years had been so devastating that had led to her death. So, and I remember when the, 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 they showed the details of the autopsy in court, the to prove the horrificness that this four-year-old had been through, some of the most experienced advocates that were sitting in the high court got up and left because they simply could not see the pictures. Um, and I think about her, like, I can't lie to you. I think about this child a lot when I, I'll, I'll just be on a jog somewhere and I'll see a little child. And for some reason, I'll think of her. So to get back to your original question, it's not easy to strike a balance you have to have family and friends that are very, very generous with allowing you 
either to share or not share. Like I can't share all of this when I come home. I need to like go through a, t- a long time where I process it myself. And then maybe one day I can share it with my partner or my family, but you've got to have a really supportive um, understanding support system yes. because there's been days where I can come home and just not want to talk about anything. But if you ask me then what drives you, what gets you through it, it's because I feel like I've been tasked with being respectful towards these stories and that's why they come my way. And also I know that there is someone that needs to hear it for the reason that they understand in their life. Um, I'm just drawn to to this kind of of journalism. And I know it will make a difference and that it can change people's lives. And so if I have to continuously feel tortured by someone's journey, it's just the price I have to pay. Wow, and I mean, that's that's extremely powerful. But on, on the other hand as well, have you taken anything from these stories and I mean, learned from them, adapted, what actually happened to maybe your personal life and actions and how you report on it um, and, and that sort of perspective. Have, have you taken anything from a case um, in that space and learned from it on, on personal growth side? 100% personally, it's, it's made me solidify the fact that this is my niche in journalism. It's what I'm good at. So stop looking stop looking any further. This is it. Uh, Secondly, it's me to go to therapy in my personal capacity. Um, I've always thought that there are professionals out there that are trained to help us. Why not use them? And I never did until recent, until probably in the last like five, six years. And I've seen the immense difference it's made in my personal life. So I would advocate mental, I'm a firm, firm mental health advocator um, in all respects. I, I could start a program one day that put a therapist in every newsroom where you didn't have to make an appointment or be stigmatized or see them over Zoom. That personal connection of just being able to go into the office and say, I need to speak to you now. Like, I don't know if you've watched Billions, Yes, yes. And they uh, have that, yes. And and they invest in that therapist that drives that team and that is constantly just there. People can just walk in, sit down, and she is geared to know the industry, know what their strengths and weaknesses are. And she's valued, she's recognized as like the greatest asset. That's how I feel journalists need access to a therapist. So therapy has been amazing for me because I, I knew quickly I had to find a coping mechanism and that began to help me um and I think it's been really fulfilling to know this is my life's purpose you know sometimes at different points in your career it's not all roses and you think to yourself gosh is this really like is this really the job for me I think it really is you know um no matter, no matter what's going on with work at the moment and the instability over a section 189 process, I still have no, no doubt in my mind that this is what I'm meant to be doing. And on a personal level, for anybody to have that sense of fulfillment, it pushes you through the challenges. It enables you to keep on pushing when things are not good or you've had a bad day at work because you know that despite, despite that bad day, 
um, this is what the world, this is your contribution to the world. No, that's, and I mean, I'm, I'm taking so much from, from your conversation and from, from your words. And I mean, it's, it's been so impactful um, to see the, the immense amount of dedication and passion that goes into journalism. And, and from, from that perspective as well, what, like giving someone advice to pr in pursuing a career like this. And I mean, this, this podcast and obviously your conversation, what you're trying to convey is, is not to put someone off the field, but also to encourage young journalists to come through and to report these meaningful stories. But from your, I would say a few words, what, what is something that you would tell someone young, upcoming uh, in the field, maybe studying uh, or wanting to pursue a similar career as yours, what advice would you give them? So like I said earlier, I found the old school journalism. So all the wannabe young journalists that are doing this, listen up. Journalism is not about who gets it first, it's who gets it right, who is the most accurate. So we live in an age where social media is driving instant journalism, right? So my mother is could be the next journalist because she could see something happen in her road, take a picture, upload it onto a WhatsApp chat group, and it lands up on Twitter. And she would have been faster than any journalist that's diligently sitting there and fact-checking. But I think this, you know, this, this instant, uh, instant coffee style of journalism needs to just take a little step back and look at the good old-fashioned art of storytelling. So my advice to any, anybody that wants to get into the field is go back to the basics just go back to the basics because that will stand you in good stead for even if you want to get into a fast paced digital style of journalism, the basics will hold you in good stead. Secondly, um, I always joke with, with new journalists and say, do you have a social life? Forget about it because <laughs> legitim legitimately that's true. You cannot plan anything in this career. I, I do not plan holidays, lunches with friends, family gatherings, I simply say to people, I would really love to support you and I will do everything I can to be there because you work public holidays, weekends, um, and you, you work, I always say my day starts at, from five to whenever. I wake up at 5 a.m. Um, whether I'm in the field working from home or in the office, I'm generally switching on my laptop around eight and my day has no end. So you don't pack up at four or five and leave the office. Your, your, your news does not sleep. News could happen at 2 a.m. Yeah. Make peace with the fact that you're going to have to work incredibly erratic, long, grueling hours. And you're going to be pushed out of your personal comfort zone a lot. Um, you're going to have to grow a very thick skin because people are going to say nasty things to you when you know all you're doing is you're trying the best to get your job done and you need to just not take it personally. There's often times where people overstep boundaries and you can address them on it, but you're put into tough situations um, to be very blunt about it. There's days where you won't be able to use the loo for such a long period of time because you're stuck in an area where they literally just is nothing but the glorious bush and that becomes your toilet. So you're gonna to be pushed into really tricky situations, but 
you learn so much about yourself when you're in these tricky situations. Um, I do believe that the foundation to good journalism is a solid qualification. So I would absolutely urge um, anybody to pursue their academic journey into journalism first at you know, your preferred institution and then back that up with some solid experience and just start. Like this idea of interning and everything is amazing, but what the SABC really gave me is I had no internship when I started with them. When I got there, I went out on a story. So just start, you know, that's oftentimes the stumbling block where you, you try to learn from someone and you almost want this formalized program of how it's gonna be, what yeah. I should do, get out into the field and start telling stories. Um, and I hate to say it, but this is a career of passion. You're not gonna make a lot of money, you're going to be exhausted a lot of the time. You've got to do this because you love it. You have to find reward in something else other than monetary value in journalism. It's one of those noble professions where unless you are an e-entertainment on the red carpet and you consider that journalism, which perhaps it is, let me not be judgmental, um, it's, you're not in it for the money. So make peace with that at the outset and realize the reward has to come in some other aspect of your career. Well, and I mean, that's, that's a huge eye opener to, I mean, young journalists or just school leavers just thinking about the idea, but sometimes we need to hear the hard truth in order to set our perspective right, going into the market, going into the job market as well. And I mean, internships really create this facade of, this is what you would be doing if you were here. This is what you would be doing here. But they don't give you the nitty gritty of saying, and I mean, millennials uh, in, in the space and coming into graduate programs, for one, they, they feel that, you know, promotions are going to happen every six months and you're going to get a salary increase in <laughs> every, every six months, every nine months, and it's going to it's going to continuously escalate, but that's not sort of the thing in the working world. You, you work really hard. Sometimes you, you won't get an increase. Um, maybe you'll get some time off um, and that would be a bonus. But I think this is the hard truth of, of the world and particularly in the field of journalism as well. And it the, is, it is it, unfortunately, and I, I don't want to also, you know, um, really demotivate anybody. It is the most rewarding career if it's right for you, as, as the same applies to anything. It is absolutely fulfilling. It is such a joy. I get to experience things on the best days. I mean, I can do a political story one day. I'll be meeting a sports player the next day. I'll, I'll be traveling to the Philippines to cover a typhoon. Um, it's absolutely exhilarating. And I think it's unbelievable, but it's not easy. Yeah. It's, I think it, it, you know to to do all of that is not easy. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I think a lot of the time people think, "Oh my God, the world of journalism is so glamorous. It's so amazing. <laughs> we look like the help at any of these events. We look like the help. We are the decrepit, exhausted people sitting in the corner at the sound desk trying to get that one up sound. But wow. it's exceptionally rewarding. So if you want, if you want to feel like a pig in shit and that's what this makes you feel like, then you'll know it's for you. <laughs> and, and what are the best resources that you used 
uh, coming into the space, starting your career, but also now that you use um, to maybe get some motivation, get some inspiration on maybe a next, the next story, um, but also just finding your path along the way. And I mean, it takes a long time to, to get into your groove of things in, in a working environment and particularly journalism. But what resources or what, what are the best resources that you use that you can also advise to, to people coming into the field? Um, you know, that's a really tricky one because we're living in such a techno-savvy age, but yeah. I still walk around with my old Marantz tape recorder um, that I know a lot of young journalists are going to laugh about, and that for me <laughs> gives me the best quality broadcast sound. In, there are instances where um, I'm recording off my cell phone, I'm editing on my cell phone. I mean, my, my cell phone is my editor, my communicating link with my editor. I type, I edit sound, I send scripts. I do everything off this little device. But um, I think resource-wise, I'd say, don't be overly reliant on technology. Technology has at the best of times been known to fail you. So have a backup plan in your head. And that good old trusty pen and notebook cannot run out of battery, cannot lose signal, cannot run out of data. So have a good backup plan is what I'm saying. Technology is there to make our lives easier, use it, but don't be overly dependent on it in being able to produce your story. I think it's a nice to have, but have your foundation in place. Um, I constantly listen and consume news. I think that's also a tricky thing in that when do you switch off? How do you reach a balance? Like you asked me earlier. Yeah. But I drive to work listening to SAFM, listening to Stephen Curtis. I listen to people that I feel are amazing at what they do, like Sakina Kamwendo, who presents Morning Live, and she started off as a radio journalist on SAFM. She's still there on the Midday Show. She is exceptional. I listen to to in the industry, not just from my own company. I listen to BBC Radio a lot. Uh, and I listen to how other people tell stories. I listen to radio a lot. I learn from it a lot. Um, for me, the idea of coming home and putting on BBC or CNN is bliss. Watching <laughs> Christian Amanpour is like what I do for fun. So I'd say media is at people's fingertips more than ever before. You know, you can get onto your phone, there's podcasts like, like you're engaging in, there's news networks, there's, there's absolutely everything. So you can't say that um, the resources aren't out there for you to hear how people are doing it better. For yeah. radio, there's a, there's a wonderful way you can incorporate natural sound into your piece. So you don't simply have voices. So for instance, if you're speaking about your, your if you're speaking about, um, how to, so, you know, you're speaking about a typhoon, you get the natural sound of kids playing in the background in the village that was hit and you put that underneath your voice. So when you hear other people's work, you learn little tips and techniques and you think, oh, that's such a great idea. Maybe I can do that the next time I'm at a story and it makes it more interesting for the ear, for the listener, yeah. you know? So 
for me, the greatest resource is to consume news. You can't just be a producer of something you don't know what the world is doing with. Uh, there's so much news out there. I know a lot of people say this, it's news overload, but if you're going to produce it, you have to consume it yourself and you've got to consume it like ferociously to get better at it. Wow. And I mean, that's, that's actually really true. We have technology at our fingertips and it's, it just makes, it creates abundance of what we hear, what we see. Um, and I mean, there's, there's vast topics around that we can, can engage in as well. And with that said, are there any myths that you've come across that in your field that you would like to debunk? That you were, that you maybe heard of before you got into the field, but then realized that wow, this is actually not what it is. I think uh, just colloquially, everybody everybody thought journalism was glamorous. People still think it's glamorous. Um, you know, think oh gosh, you're covering the Durban July. It is possibly the worst assignment in the world to cover the Durban July because you go there, everybody's dressed to the nines. You are not on an assignment and you actually need to physically get the job done. Um, The whole idea that journalism is this red carpet kind of career is absolutely, (laughs) nothing could be further from the truth, to be honest. Um, I have discarded more tackies and boots then I know what to do with simply because that's the kind of territory I work in. It's not a desk job. It's not nine to five, but it's the best thing I've ever done with my life. Wow. And I mean, you can just hear from your voice, the amount of passion that goes in into your work as well. And I mean, coming to our final remarks and our last few questions for, for this podcast, I mean, 2020 was an incredible, was, I wouldn't say an incredible year, but was an incredible year in the space of, we learned a lot about ourselves and being quarantined with our partners or alone, it taught us a lot about ourselves, a lot about our mental state and how we continuously do work. But what has 2020 given you or taught you? Oh, that's a hard question. I think I'm still trying to I'm still trying to figure it out because I feel like 2020 kind of merged into 2021 <laughs> with the state of, of how things are. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I've always been a very, uh, someone that didn't need a lot of people. Um, I kind of am very happy in my space and I love being alone. I won't lie. I have to apologize to my husband because it must have been the most challenging thing for him to be (laughs) locked up with me for that period of time. But thankfully, I I think it taught me how to be more caring, um, how to be kinder to myself. It's something I really battle with. I I kind of uh, set very high, oftentimes unachievable standards, and I've realized the fallacy of that. Um, it actually makes you less productive sometimes. It's a great thing, but there are there has to be boundaries. Yeah. And I've also really should had this something that came to me towards the end of 2020, where I said to myself, those of us that survive this incredible loss and pain that families are going through of losing people they love so much, those of us that survive this, there has to be a reason why we do. Yeah. 
they it, oh, there has to definitely. be a reason why i i remain here there has to be a reason why i was spared it because nothing separates me from someone that's passed away from covid it it doesn't choose it just takes and so i really am now at the start of this new year trying to understand what is my further purpose after this because i think everybody has had to face their purpose last year and question it and i think now i'm i'm asking myself i when by no means through this pandemic and there's going to be a few years where it's still going to be touch and go but i really feel like there's a purpose why i have to date survived and what am i going to do with that gift how am i going to make the world even better than it is right now because intrinsically i do believe that we're in this state that we're in in this real this healthcare crisis because of how we've abused the planet and the planet simply said no more i've been asking you to go easy on me as a human race and you just haven't and i honestly feel that i know it may sound wishy-washy and very airy and pie in the sky kind of stuff but as a human race we have abused this planet beyond reproach we have not cared for it and something had to come and stop us in our tracks and we simply cannot go back to our old ways once things properly normalize once the majority of our population are vaccinated we simply cannot be, go back to being abusers of the one place we have that, to call home yeah. um and so now i'm trying to figure out if i was spared and if i am lucky enough to make to get out of this entire pandemic alive what what is then my purpose what do i need to give back for being spared and i don't know i'm still on that journey to figuring that out and once i do maybe we can do a follow up <laughs> yeah i think i think there's a lot more to come and i think we'll have to do a part 2 um to catch up on on a lot more information um but on on the last i guess uh question um if you were in my shoes right now um as as an interviewer um what question would you ask yourself in in the space that maybe i've missed covering covering your story hmm i'm used to asking the questions that are answering it right <laughs> so <laughs> um i think i'd ask myself in a in a typically critically minoshni way i'd ask myself what could you have done better not just in your career but in your life and through my uh very very mindful lessons of of being kind i'd say i would have been kinder to myself because sometimes and i know part of your drive in these podcasts is to push people to be better but i think sometimes when we when we are so engrossed in reaching that goal pushing harder striving harder we don't live in the moment and slowing down like just sitting down and speaking to you for this this period of time i don't know when last i sat down and spoke to someone over the phone for that period of time you know yeah calming calming your body's processes i think i'd say what have you not done well and i have not been kind to myself i'm so busy trying to fix everything else 
that I haven't spent enough time trying to be kind to myself. So I hope that's the question and the answer all well, in one go. I think I think that touched everything as as a whole from what we discussed and just sharing your passion and sharing the knowledge and your experiences through this entire podcast. So I'd say this this entire few minutes, it's almost gone an hour. Um, but thank you so much. Thank you for to chatting to me and chatting to my audience as well about your journey. And I mean, we'll definitely do a follow-up to this. And can anyone reach you at a particular social network if they have questions or maybe a story they'd like to share? Um, where can they reach you? Absolutely. So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and I'm on Twitter. It, I'm very easy to find. Uh, my handles are at Minoshni. Thankfully, there isn't a Minoshni one anywhere else in the world. It's just <laughs> me. So it's pretty easy. You type my name into any of these social media feeds, you'll find me. Um, if my feed, I generally keep my feeds closed. So you can just send me an inbox and you can connect that way. Otherwise, they can contact you uh, through the Sahu Leadership Podcast for my email address. And I will gladly assist anybody in any way that I can. Perfect. Perfect. And thank you so much. And it has been a, an amazing journey, an amazing sort of few minutes, or I would say close to an hour again um, of chatting to you. And, and thank you so much, uh, Manoshni. And hopefully we can stay in touch and just grow, share knowledge with our audience and continue to learn as well. I'm so humbled. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Manoshni. Cheers. <laughs>